W-E-R-U comes from our listeners and Ananda Yoga and Wellness in downtown Belfast, offering yoga and wellness through weekly yoga classes, workshops, private and group yoga sessions, as well as health services like therapeutic massage and Reiki. More about the studio at anandayogabelfastme.com or 207-218-7017. The time is 10.01, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. But first, go to your phone, make a pledge, call 469-6600, and support independent, locally produced community media like what you are about to hear. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, Frances Merritt, who was the first director at Haystack Mountain School of Craft, noted that mass-produced items, however useful, deprive us. He said, they lack that special blend of sensitiveness and conviction, the force for which we have a simple word, love. I think that's a wonderful way to begin this program. We're calling Art Amazes, Craft Satisfies, the early history of the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. And I'm so pleased to have my longtime friend and and uh, now a, a, a writer, an author of that book um, produced in 19, 2019, Haystack at Liberty. And the full title is From Insight to Mountain to Island. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Alina. Thank you very much, Ron. It's wonderful to be here. Great. Well, um, perhaps a little bit of, of background on yourself. You're an artist, um, a, a writer. Um, um, what kind of drew you to think about Haystack? It started really back when I was an art education major at UMO, and I visited the school uh, just in the middle of the spring. It was very cold, and someone who had been there before took me in his sports car to show me this magic place. He said it was a magic place. And I visited Deer Isle for the first time um, and saw the campus. And when I left Maine to teach art in Minnesota, after a couple of years, I got a little bit homesick for Maine's coast. Mm. And I remembered Haystack as being this wonderful spot and a good place to take some printmaking. So I signed up for the Dutch session and I came back home to Maine for a three-week session and I just had a fantastically open and wonderful experience like mo- many people do mm. when they go to Haystack. And then the following year, <clears throat> I had resigned from teaching, but we, had, we were still living in Minnesota, and I wanted to exp- I try Haystack at Arcosanti, which is in Arizona. And I got thinking about... Um, 
if if uh, when we went there to when I went there to go to attend the session in Arizona, I realized that the same magic was happening, but not in the it wasn't place oriented. It was happening in a mesa country in a desert, and and I got really curious about it. And I had been the first time that I went the summer before in 1975. I had been there for the 25th anniversary of the school. And I remembered Fran giving a presentation. Was his friend Merritt? Fran Merritt um, was the founding director, and he was just about to retire. He, was, he retired a few years later. But I, I caught him when he was just in his height <laughs> at the end. And he had shown slides of a place in Liberty, Maine. And lo and behold, Haystack Mountain is a real place. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he talked about this wonderful group of people that had started the school way back in 1950, 51. And it, it totally fascinated me. And as an art teacher, I was curious about um, how, how we could replicate this more. And he said um, nothing really more than just some basic things when I was in Arizona, but he was very encouraging. And when I moved back to Maine, uh, my husband and I moved back to Maine, we reignited our, our friendship with Fran and his wife Priscilla, who is actually a co-director, in the, especially in the first years. And um, we became fast friends with them. And he opened the door. He said, I really, those were the best years of my life. I, I would love it if you would recall for them, for posterity. Because he didn't want to take time to write. He mm-hmm. wanted to, in his retirement, paint more. And um, he said, I don't have time to do this. But he trusted that I would do it. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time. But I finally felt so relieved to be able to say, I've finished it. Great. So, so, so um, tell us what was happening in kind of the, the art world um, in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s that yeah. kind of led um, um, Fran, and, but, but the others. And talk about some of the others who were involved in this mm-hmm. and why they felt um, um, this was an important thing to do. It was um, a time after the, the Second World War was an opening up and an optimistic time for artists and, and designers. And he had been in Michigan and experienced the designers and the people in, in Cranbrook. And, but he wasn't actually supposed to be the director. Mary Bishop, who is a Mary Beeson Bishop, was a philanthropical woman who had been raised in New England and she was invited to come back to visit and she found this little nucleus of art, artist craftsmen in Maine and and like everywhere in the country our crafts were considered sort of secondary citizens in the art world they were like handicrafts and folk art and f- uh, there was no reason in Fran's mind why crafts couldn't be art. And that he saw a relationship between art and architecture and everything. And when the original pe- group of people, which included the Sewell family, Marnie and Ed Sewell, um, and Beth the Crawford, who is a state librarian from, and very erudite, a collector of pots and a potter, and Stellan Chavis who were printmakers and sort of homesteaders 
uh, and they had just moved to Maine in the late 40s. They all were already trying to make a living in crafts, and they were doing prints and some pottery and some things like that, but they didn't really have an outlet. And when Mary was became um, excited about what they were doing, and she said, I'll donate some money, and you can build some buildings, and you can have a school. And they thought, that they had thought it over, and they said, okay. And in the milieu, there were no other places to go to study crafts. Um, Mary had been at Penland School of Crafts, which is in North Carolina, to study a little bit of weaving. And she was uh, she mostly a potter, but she, she actually was just a very wealthy woman who loved art. Mm. And, and she saw no difference between art and craft, but other people did. And um, it took a lot of work on Fran's part and Bill Brown, who became a very close friend of Fran at Haystack and then went on to Penland to become the director so that Penland and Haystack became sister schools. And they were really only five or six places in the whole country where you could study to be a potter and a weaver and, mm. a, and that. So it was different then than it is now. Now, so how, did, how did Fran actually get connected to this group of artists in Maine and Mary Bishop? What was that connection? Well, Mary um, had said, "Go ahead and get whoever you want for to be a director," and they they thought they had some really nice, talented people from Canada. But they the visa fell through at the last moment, and Fran was invited to just come for one summer. <laughs> but it turned out that. They liked him a lot, and he was, it tells more, all the details in the book, but it ended up that he decided to, to become the first director, and it was, it was tough. It was, he had to hang notices on telephone poles and go from door to door, literally, so, <laughs> to get so it started. This, and this was in Liberty, Maine. It um, was. If we drive through there now, we're on uh-huh. Route 3. right. And um, <laughs> Route 3 was a pretty big deal because it divided the campus. That's um, right. Back in the 60s, is that right? Well, actually, it ha- started happening in 1955. Okay. And um, they made plans and said, we're, we're going to have to go right through your dooryard. <laughs> to, and, it, and they loved, they were selling the school as a bucolic place to come in as a retreat and really immerse yourself in this wonderful place where you could learn to weave art you know, tapestries, and you could make pots and your peace and quiet of the countryside, and then they were going to be constructing this highway right through <laughs> where they were. And so they, they, it was a tough time yeah. for So Fran. describe what, what that um, first set of buildings was like and what was happening in those buildings. And, and this was a summer time It was a effort. summer school yep. only. Yeah. Um, uh, Stellan Chavez had thought, that they might be able to have a year-round place, but it became evident very quickly that Maine is a great place for summer people to come <laughs> and have a great time, but it's not a place for most people who want to live year-round and really far from the market mm-hmm. and everything. So um, what? how shall I say? The, it was decided pretty fast that they would just keep it as intimate and... Um, they would start rotating faculty. That was his idea to to bring in really top-notch instructors. And this was on the Cranbrook model where people would be able to learn from a master 
and get a real injection of inspiration. And then you could just create something so different than you ever imagined that it would carry you. It would be like a shot of inspiration, really. You've mentioned Cranbrook, and I should um, remind you that our listeners probably don't know what Cranbrook is. So Cranbrook Academy of Art is in Michigan. It's a premier place where designers uh, like, um, let's see, the Eames, Eames chair, and oh, they were designed by people who worked there, and the people who were were living there on the campus were like um, it's <laughs> masters, and the people who came to study there, and it's still going. It's mm-hmm. a it's a major place, mm-hmm. a, a very high prestigious place to go to to study art and design, and there they never differentiated between. Um, painting, they saw, they they did painting and and all all of the arts, mm. and they blended crafts in with that, and that was not typical of the 1950s. That's uh, one of the first places where everything was taught as an equal mm. thing, not separated in level of competence or. So, what would you say the the difference was in in Haystack and Cranbrook? What, what did they What did they keep from Cranbrook? That the, mm-hmm. the notion of the master and the inspiration. That was the main thing. And what was different about that early? It's early... not an academic place. You don't Haystack. You never get a grade. Mm-hmm. You can get credit to a school sometimes if you apply to do so, but it's a place where everyone is invited from 18 to 85 or whatever, and and novices can come and all levels mix. Mm. And the the thing that was so special about Haystack was that a novice could mix with a a great artist, a, a person of great competence, over and share meals and and do things with them and not feel on a different plane. Everyone sure. was treated with sure. great respect. One of the, the the one things that I really love about the book is that it, it gives um, a, a modern-day reader a sense of what was happening in, in the world of art and craft um, in that in that era. And this origin story that you've kind of been able to, to um, elicit from the, your interviewees and, and from the record um, is so important for us to understand that, 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 that story. Um, perhaps you could read um, that piece um, where uh, Fran Merritt is, is talking about um, the underlying uh, philosophy of, of teaching and learning um, from your book, um, which is called Haystack at Liberty. This is an, an article that Fran wrote for Handweaver and Craftsman, which was one of the few publications available for people to find out information, and, and he wrote it for the winter issue of 1951-52. So this is quite mm. amazing, and, and it sets out something that he followed for a long time. The natural beauty and remoteness of the school's location promote an opportunity for genuine cohesion of interests. It is believed that the school will provide an exceptional opportunity for a group limited to 30 residents and a small number of day students to participate in mutual problems to arts and crafts and to enjoy the benefits of group living in an informal rural atmosphere. In the school's program, it is the first aim to encourage creative thinking and personal expression. This is the only dogma. Emphasis on technical skill and physical discipline is relegated to personal ambition 
and desire of the student and his exploration with the materials and tools. Technique is considered a consequence of this desire rather than a means to create experience. Working on the assumption that everyone is creative in some way, the faculty of the school starts from the point of personal development of each student and emphasizes immediate experience rather than academic procedure. Weaving at Haystack is not taught as a handicraft. It is promoted as a medium of expression, and the work in the shop is encountered as a problem in structure and design. The aim is to avoid cliches of any persuasion. Continual personal co- cooperation and encouragement provide the background of treatment for all beginners at Haystack with ample opportunity for independent work. Now, that's a pretty dramatic difference from what was really happening in most situations. I'll just remind listeners that we're um, here on Talk of the Town where our topic today is Art Amazes, Craft Satisfies, the early history of the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. And our guest this morning is Elena Vanderwerker, who is the author of Haystack at Liberty, uh, published in 2019. Um, so the, this this notion that um, you, you would kind of create a place, um, um, not create a place, but you'd, you'd find found a place, and then there were lots of local people who said, hmm, this is kind of interesting, I'd like to get involved, and, and that really helped uh, create the foothold of Haystack at Liberty. I think so. The, the big problem was that, as you alluded to before, it was Route 3 coming through, and Mary Bishop had decided that they had to move the school. And local people always were a part of it. There was there were wonderful local people who, a man named Roy Thomas was the handyman and the fixer-upper of everything. And he was a, just one of those mainers who can put his hand to any task. And he could do the electrical and the plumbing and he built they built these cabins they were little cabins they were all they, some of them they all had decks and they worked outside when they could um, and then, then there was a lodge with a beautiful fireplace built of stones inside and Mary didn't really want to leave that kind of atmosphere but she said, I want to be in a place where I think the road will never come and split my mm. campus again at the mm. campus again. And so, yeah, that was a big change. And it did consolidate Fran's thinking about keeping it a rotating faculty um, and with sessions and not a year-round school. And that, that division of thinking between the original group became a thorn uh, that had to be worked out. And it was it, it was a bit sad and, and sorrowful that they couldn't all kind of be on the same page and moved together, but it just wasn't going to happen. So mm-hmm. that, that... So I was interested in my own um, way in, in the uh, origins kind of as a nonprofit and the fact that this yeah. board of directors was yeah. wrestling not only with the uh, artistic intent that you've just read about, but mm-hmm. also things like, oh, what are we going to do? We have to relocate. Or is right. this going to be a summer school versus a, a year-round school? Were there other tensions or, or parts of the story that you kind of gleaned about what the board was dealing with? Well, the board was very interesting. Mary right away found a banker in Belfast that she really liked. And he, Ralph 
Thompson was his name, and he was the board president up until um, for 26 years, I think, which is a lot. And he had to drive all over, you know, he had, he was a part of it and he kept everybody on an even footing. And he was also a really good friend of these people in mm. Maine. Mm. So and he would, he was the kind of guy who would, if you, if you had an injury and you had driven to the hospital without your purse and you needed money right away, he would just hand you the money and <laughs> say, okay, here it is. Oh, you can pay me back when you get ready. He was, he was always, um, a, a great supporter for, mm. for the school. And, uh, Mary asked all the local, all the board members were local Mainers, mm. and um, they were mostly artists. Mm-hmm. And Fran right away connected with the artists on, on the coast, um, Danny Winters, and the the people, William Thon. There were a lot of artists whose names come up in the histories now. Uh, who Bill Keenbush, for instance, mm. he wasn't a board member, but he was a regular visitor. Um, those artists were really interested in the school, and also there was a connection to Skowhegan School of Arts because the, Fran was a friend of uh, the Cummings family, and and they were the, the beginners, the founders of the Skowhegan School. So the, the nonprofit thing was really important, and Marnie was. Uh, key for that because Marnie, Marnie Sewell, right? She was um, uh, working in Augusta, and she was the one who made it happen to to incorporate it. And um, it was a big struggle to to a big undertaking. It took a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> mm. And finances were were also part of the their struggles. Well, of course, and um, Mary Bishop was the single benefactor mm. and she gave thousands of dollars right away to, so they could mill they actually hand milled all the boards for the buildings they're still standing if you slow down on route three you can still get a glimpse you could even pull in and look they're they're wonderful um and ed sewell the builder you put them in like together with Roy Thomas and a couple other guys, and um, they were supposed to last two hundred years, and mm. I think they probably will. Right. <laughs> so finances, um, and then the the the, the big shift um, to think about oh, we have to find a new new, new location. Yeah. Um, so Fran uh, continued to kind of shape the experience. Absolutely. Um, there's another passage from your book um, that I'd like you to to read, um, where he talks about. Um, what the experience is like, uh, what art is like, um, a notion of play. Um, yes. Why don't you read that that uh, that passage? Okay. Um, 105 and 106. Okay. Where on 105 do you want me to start? Uh, Haystack became a place where one finds support, freedom to experiment and freedom to fail. Haystack offered no grading system, no degree, no investment except your time with others who embrace creativity. Your work without constraint. Come as an amateur, any age, play with materials, discover the possibilities unplanned. If something does not work, so what? Try anew. Explore fresh avenues or alter the procedure. You learn experientially. Promoting creative ambulance encourages a sense of play as work, work as play. This sort of play welcomes accidental discoveries as well as disciplined sharing of methods and techniques and theories. 
this sort of play is serious in intent to make good things in good spirit. In speaking about play, I refer to my observations of it in the way friends in the way of France life and and lay it beside a philosophical exploration of that word by Johann Heusinger, who was born in 1872 and died in 1945, a professor at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. In his last book, Homo Ludens, a study of play in the element of culture, the play element in culture, which was published in 1949 in English. He gives a detailed analysis of the function of play that covers almost any aspect of human activity imaginable. And so, yeah, so that, 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 you know, playfulness you, is important. Right, and, and you described um, your first experience, and then you found mm-hmm. it again, um, you, and you were at, at Haystack in right. Deer Isle. Then you went to Arco Sandy. Um, you, you talked about a magic. Is that part of the magic, this notion of play? I've heard people who are young in high school who go for a long weekend, and they, say, they come back and they say, you're right, it's magic. Mm. It, Something happens when there's a community of people who sleep in the same proximity, eat meals together, and share this amazing expectation that art in playfulness is really wonderful and important. That becomes a magic experience. I've mm. heard the word magic used for haystack a lot of times. Mm. Mm. Well, I think we're going to take a short break um, very soon and, and hear about the magic that happens at WERU. <laughs> You've been a longtime member. Yes. I've been a longtime member. Proud and we're be. certainly encouraging others to join this family of playful people. Yes. Um, so we'll t- turn it over to, to Amy play-gry. and Joel, and, and yes. uh, we'll hear a little bit more about the, the pledge drive. Thank you. All right, a little bit of theme music in the background. 469 6600 or 207 469 6600. This is the last day of our pledge drive. We started last Saturday looking to raise $20,000. So far, 18338 Thank you. Leaving $1,662 to go by 4 o'clock this afternoon. So if you can help make that happen, please give us a call. Yeah. And, uh, We'll end up with a very success, success, successful pledge drive once again. Yeah, I mean, we're so close. So this is something that you could be the heroic person who uh, puts us over the top. And we're still looking for some new members, too. We're doing pretty good on that goal, but we still could welcome more. I think we have about, I, there's some glare there. Is it 45? We, uh, we've got 55 so far, oh, so we 20. need 20 more. Oh, okay. So we're, we're looking for 75. 75 total, right? Okay, so call 469-6600, make a pledge in whatever amount works for you support important programming like talk of the towns i just printed out a couple of the uh shows that he's done in the past several months last time it was acadia national park before that um exploring the role of small town newspapers a conversation with um the author of dawson's falls conversation with a former president of maine seacoast mission I mean, lots of great lots of great topics and uh, probably a lot of you out there listening have been on Talk of the Towns. If this is raise a, your hand. Yeah, right. Raise <laughs> your hand. Go over to the phone and punch in four six nine sixty six hundred and show support for the kind of programming where you can say, "Hey, I've got a great story to tell," and we'll help get you on the air. The essence of community radio, bringing in the community to talk about all the things that we do and aspire to do, and that we have done. And this radio station's been here for over thirty years. You have supported it, uh, so. We've done a great thing here, and thank you to everybody who's called up. 
at 469-6600 this week. $1,662 to go. We can Let's do, do this. it. You Let's can do it. And we'll go back over to Ron in the studio. Great. Well, thanks, thanks, Amy and Joel, for helping kind of guide the discussion um, to, to uh, support this wonderful station. And I'm back in the studio here with Elena Vanderwerker. And Elena is the author of Haystack at Liberty, uh, From Insight to Mountain to Island. And that was published um, in 2019, this year. Um, and we're talking about the early days of, of Haystack. Many of our listeners would have experienced Haystack at Deer Isle. And Elena Vanderwerker has kind of uncovered the story of Haystack at Liberty, where it, where it was begun, right under Haystack Mountain. And so we're glad to have you talk a little bit about that. We've already mentioned that the, the, the reason that Haystack is no longer at Liberty mm-hmm. is because there was a highway <laughs> Being that built. was a major problem. Right. <laughs> so describe some of the early explorations that led people to Deer Isle. What, what was it that led people to Deer Isle to, to uh, create the new campus? It was uh, Mary again. She met Bill Muir. This is Mary Bishop. Mary Bishop. Mary Beeson Bishop was the founder of Haystack. And Fran always called her the angel mm. because she was an undying supporter and monetarily and spirit-filled, and she had an incredibly keen sense of character. She sensed in Bill Muir right away a person of integrity, and he's an art, he was a great artist. He died very young. Emily Muir lived in Stonington for many years, and I met her um, many times, and she had a wonderful marriage with Bill, and they were both architects and artists, and Bill thought he was on the board of trustees, he invited for Haystack, for Haystack. Uh-huh. and when they decided they had to move, they thought about staying on the lake in um, Liberty, St. George Lake, and uh, they have, they even took an option for land there because they'd still be near Haystack Mountain. And he drove home and he said, no, I think, why would you want to stay on a lake when you can come to the ocean? I mean, they loved Stonington, right? And Deer Isle was a place of, I don't know, magic again. And um, so Mary right away said, I'm going to make it happen. And it, she did. She, she said to Bill, um, I want you to look for land. And they looked at several sites. And Fran first saw the haystack site where it is now on Sunshine's Point, actually, um, by boat. And he fell in love with it. And he didn't realize anything about the land underneath the trees. <laughs> it was very tree. You know, when you see the land from the water, it always looks different. And he he right away thought that would be a, a doable thing. It took a tremendous amount of effort to move it to Deer Isle. But they found a wonderful architect with Jack Leonard Larson's help he was on the board of trustees. He's a wonderful, still living in his 90s now, um, textile artist of great renown. He even had a show in the Louvre, and he's a big feature in this book. And they, they, um, Ed Barnes had a place here on MDI. Mount Desert Island. Mount Desert, yep. And in Solmesville. His mother was a writer, and she had bought a place there, and they sailed by that land a lot and um, 
He's, he was a renowned architect. He had designed museums and embassies and houses, but he was a wonderful, thoughtful man, and I really had a wonderful time interviewing him. He was very generous and articulate and answered all my questions, and he was a supporter of Haystack as an honorary trustee until he died, and his wife was too, Mary. And Bill Muir found the land, and um, she wrote a check for it and said, I'll just keep it until the board is ready to make the move. And they finally came around, and it took a while to think, well, maybe we can do it. And and Deer Isle really welcomed the whole idea. Mm. They were very, very excited to have I think the local um, selectmen got involved. Well, they wrote a letter to them and said, welcome, we'll do anything to help you get going. And Basil, um, oh, Lord, I forgot Basil's last name. Basil Basil Bray was a carpenter, contractor on the island who had been building houses for Emily Muir at her design. And he was fabulous to work with. And Ed Barnes said, if you please get a lot of basil in there, because he was just one of those fabulous people. He he could make a, a purse out of a sow's ear. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and, and Ed Barnes came up with a design that was so beautiful that it won a big prize at the 25th year of its being. Um, it became lauded by architects all over the world as one of the examples of uh, great fitting to the site and, and purposefulness of the of this place. So mm. it, it is a magic place. <laughs> well, let's see if we can get some of our listeners to call in with their questions or perhaps That's their great. own experience yeah. um, with um, as haystackers, as I think you call them in, in the That's book. That's what they, they refer to themselves. They all call themselves. So they can uh, participate in our radio conversation um, by calling 469-0500 or toll-free one 866 6259378 let's hear from some haystackers about their experience or perhaps their questions for our guest um, author and artist Elena Vanderwerker um, so describe if you could um, for those listeners who haven't been to haystack what would they see as they um, enter the campus and 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 perhaps then think about what they see if they were um, boating by there's two yeah, different views absolutely different um, I've had the great pleasure of being able to see it from both directions. It looks like a village, a tiny village. Um, Ed Barnes said that another great architect wrote to him and said, oh, you're copying Greek fishing village, only you've got it looking like New England, <laughs> which is exactly what he what had in mind mm-hmm. when he made it. It has come to the a, a, stair, a spine of stairs, that go all the way from the top of the campus all the way down to the water. And then decks connecting all of the studio space and living cabins and the quarters and the lodge, except for the hot shop. That's separate. And What's a hot shop? The hot shop is for glass blowing and ironwork, um, which were added in the 1980s. And... Um, it, it, when the f- school first started, it was basically weaving with pottery and some printmaking. And that was just about the focus. And But then as the world of crafts became more and more acceptable and studio crafts became part of the regular way of thinking about art, 
um, then more and more things get added, and now they have a place where you can study digital art and and see how that. So it's really up to the minute, but it's also still keeping the size, and that that was crucial for Ed and for Fran, Ed Barnes and Fran Merritt. They they said we never should get over. 90 people together because if you get bigger than that you lose that kind of cohesiveness that's so crucial to making haystack Mm. feel the way it does the buildings are were supposed to be temporary they were very well constructed but they were not they're not insulated um they're they're resting on posts uh, that go down to the slope on the south-facing slope. It's a very beautiful campus. Uh, why don't you, uh, while listeners are perhaps getting ready to call in with their do. question, um, <laughs> why don't you read from um, Bill Muir's letter, um, page 189 in your book, uh, Haystack okay. at Liberty, because he has a wonderful kind of lyrical way of, of describing the, the Haystack uh, um, experience on, on uh, the, in, in Deer Isle. I start... I introduce this letter by saying Bill Muir's eloquence deserves to sing about the transition from the rustic open mountainside to the rigorous, voluptuous main coastline. He wrote in his expansive handwriting on 9 May 1960, Dear Mary Bishop, Friday evening, Emily and I got a delayed start on our drive to the new school project. It was twilight as we arrived via the winding wooded drive over moss-covered ledges and patches of thick woods. As we came out onto the clearing, the moon was in a dreamy haze, and the talkative water was high on the shore. The eerie beginnings of foundations gave one a feeling of archaeological findings, and I thought, how alike our commencement and end. It must give you a deep sense of satisfaction to be playing such an important part in this cultural and creative thrust. I know how well you will sleep when the accommodations are ready, for way up to the top of the hill, the music of the waves is a rhythmic cadence. So this is Bill Muir, who was an architect and a, a, a board sculptor. member. He was Sculpt- a sculptor. Sculptor, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. And he's writing to the, the benefactor he's about writing. this transition from yeah. liberty to right. sunshine. Yes. And uh, so that's just a wonderful. So he, he's a he's a word artist as well. He was an amazing sure, man. Emily sure. Muir said he was perfect uh, in her great. autobiography. Great. Well, again, <laughs> I think there's probably some haystackers out there. We invite them to call with their questions or their insights or their their experience um, at Haystack. Give us a call one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or four six nine. Zero five zero zero. So um, I, I hate to say that this is a project of a lifetime, but you've been at this research <laughs> for a long time. Tell, talk about what that research was like. Um, you you got your inspiration by talking with uh, Fran Merritt and mm-hmm. his encouragement for someone. Right. He said to to keep the record. Yes. Um, what was the, what was that process like for you? The process was an, a lifetime. It was. It did take. I met Fran when I was twenty five. And I was his friend until he died in 2000. And so that takes up a lot. And all of that time, he opened doors to me. He um, encouraged me to interview the people who made this place happen. He wanted to say, 
a lot about a lot of people. And I must say that this book is full of amazing people. Mm. And I've touched not, I couldn't really tell all the wonderful people, but he wanted everyone who had been key to the plays to be remembered. And he he he's, he charged me with that. And uh, so I feel really grateful that I finally could say, yes, here it is, it's done, friend. And um, so you you started with some of his hints, and but you you've been, spent, you've been lots yeah. of time interviewing people, oh, definitely, and, and looking at correspondence. I started in the days when you had reel-to-reel tape recorder, and I interviewed all the people that I were still living: Marnie Sewell and Ed Barnes and um, Emily. There were a long, long list of people still living and who had made the transition happen because it was like a very tight-knit family of artists, craftsmen in the 50s. And they all pitched in. They literally helped move the furniture and everything to the school. And, and they became teachers in, in, in the new situation. And it, it really was because of that cohesive family feeling of being a haystacker that enabled the whole thing to move out to the island and just keep growing more uh, deeply rooted, really, and and yet open all the time. And and lots of excitement built around that. And he he was key. He would say, he took me, I, I traveled with this the Marins, Fran. Fran and Priscilla. Uh, I went to, I, I said, Bill Brown is a big part of the story. I need to, he said, yeah, you need to talk with him. So we went to, we met, he lived in North Carolina, and we met in Washington, D.C., and we spent a week together going to museums, interviews, long, I had long, long talks with him. He he was a funny man, and he was a wonderful director at Penland for many years. And so I got to meet all these fabulous people. For me, it was a connective enjoyment of letting all these wonderful people tell me their how much they had learned from the whole thing and people even now even now tell me oh i haven't thought about haystack at liberty i, I talked with nancy margolis who has an um she came to school at haystack during the 1950s she was um, a main crafts association board member with me in the 80s, um, along with Fran and uh, a long list of people who are, and that's still extant. So uh, there were a lot of con- interconnections. And when I let her know that I had finished the book, she's 93, she said, but I have still vivid memories of it. And her daughter loves Haystack just as much. And she comes every year. Mm. So your research process was was interviews. Um, interviews to, to, and going to UMO archives. Okay, Fran, about... Fran saved everything. Okay. And Priscilla, uh, Priscilla's letters and all of Mary Bishop's letters that had to do with the school, all the trustees' minutes, I had copies of all those things. I spent a lot of time in the University of Maine, our special collections, and there were reams and reams of things and lots and lots of interviews that I drew on. So there's a lot of firsthand information in the book. Mm. So um, what, what was that process like? Because as I say, you're, you've been working on this for a, a long time. I became friends with them. <laughs> okay, so you became friends. But what was it like to try to, to create the story? Ah, uh, 
that was a whole nother ball game yeah. because I was trained as an artist and um, I love poems and writing, but I, I hadn't really tried to. I had written a, a, a version of this book in the 80s, but it was dry and it was our academic. Mm. And I said, no, I think it's better as a story. And so I, I grouped the things together according to what they were interested in. I do have a timeline, naturally, I follow the line of what happened, but um, it focused a lot on the philosophy behind things and people's personalities and letting their words show how they were, how mm. they thought, mm. what was important to them at that time. Why, why would they invest a lot of their time and energy in, in this project? Because they certainly didn't get paid to do it. <laughs> it was just uh, a labor of love. Right. Yeah, it was a labor of love for me, and I'm still hearing Fran's voice in my head. Oh, I'm sure you are. one 625 9378 if you'd like to participate in our conversation this morning. Our topic is called Art Amazes, Craft Satisfies, the early history of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. Um, so one of the, the fascinating pieces about the book is your um, wonderful use of black and white photographs. Um, were those part of the archives, or did you get those from the, your interviewees? Um, how did you come by that wonderful treasure trove of, of photographs? Uh, Marnie Sewell gave me some of the pictures from the very beginning uh, out of her trunk, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally. And um, she she said, here, you you... I trust you'll use them well. And most of them were black and white. Um, there are pictures of all these wonderful people. There are 140 in there. Uh, do you have a caller? Yes, we do. Oh, let's hear what they have a- to Alan say. Alan from Belfast, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, thank you. And uh, this is Alan Creighton from Belfast and one of the founders of Waterfall Arts, which oh. started on oh. the same site that... Uh, Haystack Mountain School of Crafts started on. Um, and Elena, you and I have talked before. I'm really delighted to hear that you've brought this book out. It's great to hear all the philosophy that started at Haystack. And we've been inspired at Waterfall to take on the same kinds of things, both from the point of view of being inspired by Haystack and also from Skowhegan. So we're now 20 years into doing a similar kind of a thing in started in Montville, where Haystack yes. started, and now in Belfast. <laughs> so just wanted to connect. Thank you so much for your call, Al. I've been wondering how you are and what's happening with you. <laughs> yeah, doing very well, thank you. It's great to hear. I look forward to seeing the book. Like that. So, I, so, Alan, you actually, um, I, as I understand it, you own the buildings or some of those buildings? and, and we own, Yes, we do own the buildings. That, uh, well, actually, Richard Sewell used to say that Marnie's son, Richard, used to say that the um, Mary Beeson Bishop and the artists who you mentioned earlier, the founding artists, were at the table, uh, which still exists in the mill house right That's by right. the stream, Yes. Um, when the idea came up. And I think the idea was that I heard Mary said, there's so many talented artists here. Why don't you all start a school? <laughs> that's exactly that's, right. <laughs> that's all it takes sometimes. You know? <laughs> well, it took a lot of work after that, and you, your oh, work is wonderful at Waterfall Arts, and well, I've got a picture of the waterfall in the book that inspired that. <laughs> oh, well, good. Well, I just wanted to touch base and uh, say congratulations on getting the book out, and 
I look forward to reading it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ellen. Okay. Uh, 469 uh, uh, 0500 or 1-866-625-9378. Elena, um, one of the interesting parts for me as a reader, uh, being a, a friend for uh, many years, is that you um, you treat this as a narrative that you, you're in a... Your character in this book, <laughs> well, it, I observer had, I and a had, character, yeah. and that's an interesting. And and you motion, note, noted that you'd tried an earlier version that felt dry. So was the insertion of yourself part of the way to to enliven this for you well, as a writer? Well, well, it. I wanted. I was thinking of the reader more than than myself, and I do start with my gift from Fran, of a needle that he forged at at um, Arcosante and he he handed it to me and he said here you weaving and you need this tapestry needle so the theme that runs through it is the connectiveness of his spirit and I had to start with the physical thing Mm. I knew that I, I wanted to talk about the philosophy behind the way uh, people approached this project because it was an amazing feat. It wasn't easy. Al, Al said, well, oh, yeah, sure, we'll just start it up and it'll happen. But it took a tremendous amount of energy and um, not just money but spirit energy to really keep it going. And uh, now it's well endowed and it's it's um, internationally famous and and I I know that lots and lots of people are very generous in their contributions to the school and Fran always said this is way more than I ever dreamed would happen I I just thought it was going to be an ephemeral thing and the sense of play like a play that's um, serious. Uh, but his spirit is really still alive in that the molding, and that was the thing that sustained me. And I saw him do that in many other situations, but um, mostly in in this biggest work of art of his, called Haystack. Mm, mm. <laughs> and I did I did inject a little bit of myself. Um, of course, the quotes that I chose and the the. The, the um, interweaving of the of the voices of all these people, and there are hundreds mm. of people who who I talked with and thought about it a long, long time. It has been a work of a lifetime in a certain way. Mm. I sort of fulfilled Fran's need for writing a memoir for him. Mm. Um, mm. It was basically that. But I also didn't neglect his wife, Priscilla, because she was a great force. And I, I tell you that meeting all these people and being a part of their creative spirit and seeing it work, um, it was so, so important. And it's, it's become spread now. There's, there are haystack influences all over the place. Um, Dale Chihuly credits being teaching glass blowing in haystack with starting Pilchuck School, which is a an international school for glass blowers, and there's a place in Japan that's um, modeled after haystack. And even though their websites don't say that, the 
people who started those schools told Fran, it was because of you I, mm. I did this. Mm. And um, it's happening all over the place now. And it's very exciting to me to see um, the inter- interlacing of all this um, energy and connectiveness. And I really, I think that that, that changed my approach to writing the book. Um, I knew that I wanted to have the history be all accurate and it's all true. There's not a word that's not real in there. It's all nonfiction, but it's called narrative nonfiction in the sense that I had to make it into a story Mm. and not just present facts in a dry way like an academic treatise Mm. or something. (laughs) As a reader, it worked for me. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Right, and we hope it will work for for others as well. Um, What's your hope? Um, You say you've you've been true to the history. Yes. Um, What do you think um, readers um, will take away? What what do you hope that they will take away? Well, the arc of it ends with with um, Fran and his thinking, which kept developing. Even after he retired from Haystack, he was always curious about the direction of the trajectory of, of what, it, what, what was happening. And he, he was key, really. And at the end, I, I quote a lot about how he thought about things from... More, not just an administrative point of view, but an artist craftsman's mm. point of view. And I have a long ending at the end. I have in the in the end, I have him going into the future with his thoughts about how crafts could be really a, a savior for mankind if we think about how we make things mm. and how we care for our life and how we want to. Keep the world from <laughs> destroying itself because of our greed. If you think about how things are made by hand, as opposed to and designed for people to use in a warm, spirit-filled way, that's that settles people back into reality in a way that's really crucial, I think. And um, he uses the word love in. A, Oh, I quote a very long essay that he worked on in the 80s at the end. Mm. So that notion that um, craft is is perhaps a way forward. It's, um, it's definitely ending on that note. And that was my idea, was that it's not just history, but it's a connective tissue of the past to the future. And I think it gets to the spirit that we are all makers. We are. All makers. And um, if if we look at our own lives, um, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be just consumers. Exactly. <laughs> we should be we, making things right. that we value and, and we use. When you make a decision, every day we make decisions. How, mm. how do we want to approach our lives? We can choose to do things in a substantial, thoughtful way. And that's being creative in your in your actions and being physical there's something magic that happens when people work with their hands um paulo soleri talked about how in his in his little place in italy where he grew up 
people always had handwork mm. and they were carrying it around and he loved having the craftspeople at Arcasanti do, doing work with their hands. Perhaps you'd close um, with a reading from uh, a writer named uh, Nancy Baker, um, yes. uh, 234. There's no backwards deck. Go ahead with Nancy that. Nancy Baker was a, a wonderful woman, a librarian who became a board member and was very supportive of Haystack. And Fran kept aside a letter from her out of the archives that he gave me personally, and I will I will be donating it to the archives. And it says, I have been thinking about Haystack. I've been realizing what it really is. It's not just some buildings in the woods with some people. And this was before they moved to Deer Isle. It is an expression of ideas, wonderful ideas, some of which I'll list here. Excellence, inspiration, instruction, enthusiasm, interest, Honesty, value, service, recreation, rest, activity, peace, and charm, beauty, and all. So she says, Haystack, as an expression of these ideas, stands ready to fulfill its promise and meet its needs of those who are seeking what it has to offer. Great. Elena Vanderwerker, thanks so much for being with us. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. Tune into our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle, University of Maine Sea Grant, on the fourth Friday morning of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Elena Vanderwerker, artist and author of Haystack at Liberty, from Insight to Mountain to Island, published this year. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation.